Welcome to Roy Orbison Jr.'s Rock and Roll Circus Podcast. I'm Roy Orbison Jr., and I'm happy today because it's Led Zeppelin Day, and uh, I turned into a 14-year-old super fan. Led Zeppelin was my favorite band, really, really meaningful to me through so many periods of my life. And like a good book, I, I go back to them every five years. I go through a big Led Zeppelin phase. I've gone through one or two phases where I didn't like Led Zeppelin for some or other reason. They were so good and so big that I had to kind of rebel against my own fandom. Um, like a lot of you and a lot of people my generation, I have my older brother to thank for turning me on to Led Zeppelin. I was already listening to a lot of good music. when I, My first favorite was Chuck Berry when I was two. Definitely by the time I was four years old, Chuck Berry was my favorite. And I went, and, and that's pretty early. And I had good music taste all the way through. But my brother Wesley, it was his record collection that I was sneaking through like a kid. And, and it's been a big part of my relationship with my brother Wesley. We, we still, once a month, phone each other and talk about something about Led Zeppelin for an hour. And it's been a, a journey with him and a self-discovery. Boy, just can't say enough about it. So thank you, Wesley Orbison, my older brother Wes, my hero, for sharing my love of Led Zeppelin with me. In my room when I was 11 or 12 years old, I had leather covers on the doors in my room. That wasn't unusual then, and uh, but now in preparation for this podcast, I was thinking about it and I thought, oh my gosh, that's really expensive. He covered the doors in white leather. Anyways, so that's what it was like growing up with Roy Orbison. I had leather doors, a super cool room, and I wrote in black magic marker on those leather on the leather door to my bathroom, LED Zeppelin. I remember doing it. It was permanent black magic marker. And when my dad came in a little later, he came in and I I remember there was a short pause. He walks in, he looks around the room and sees the door. <laughs> and it's like writing it on your wall. It would be like spray painting it on your wall in your room today. And I certainly didn't ask for permission. He looks at it for a minute and he says, you misspelt it. And I had only put one P. <laughs> Led, L-E-D-Z-E-P-E-L-I-N. Um... I had to ask him what Led Zeppelin was, you know. Uh, the first thing a lot of people think, even today and, and back then, was, you know, it was a name or something. And he said, oh, that'll go over like a Led Zeppelin. You know, he, he described the, the Zeppelin. We talked about the Hindenburg and all those kind of things. So my dad taught me a lot of things, and he taught me a lot about Led Zeppelin. So that's where my love affair of Led Zeppelin really begins. Um, Back in those days, we had these little cassette Walkmans, and I went everywhere with this thing, and I went to school with it, and it was really part of my identity, Led Zeppelin, and it still is. I have my long blonde hair, largely because of 
the skateboarding scene in Southern California, the uh, Dogtown and Z-Boys guys, and and uh, Tony Hawk, and you know the kind of surf culture. But when I trace it back, even those guys, they got it from Led Zeppelin. I've got so many funny stories, so I'm going to read from a podcast that I wrote back in around 2006 for a Led Zeppelin fan club. I have to tell you, I had ulterior motives, or ulterior motives at the time. I got all the Led Zeppelin bootlegs back before they were easy to find on the internet. Uh, the guy was nice enough. He made me about 20 or 30. I got all of the great bootlegs. For me, it was like triply my Led Zeppelin catalog. And, uh, and I'm still a, an avid collector of Led Zeppelin bootlegs. If any of you guys have some rarities you want, uh, you think I might not have, please send them in. I'm still that big a fan. Here we go. This is called Led Zeppelin and Roy Orbison, a blog podcast by me. I love Led Zeppelin. I just love them. It would be easy to write a whole article on why and how, but I'll keep this limited to parts of the story relating to my father, Roy Orbison. At first glance, there would seem to be few connections between the music of Led Zeppelin and the music of Roy Orbison. It will be fun for me to point some out. My father was one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse of rock and roll. Under the guidance of Sam Phillips at Sun Records in Memphis, Tennessee, Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, Roy Orbison, and Jerry Lee Lewis set the world on fire with rock and roll in the 1950s. Jimmy Page has said the reason he wanted to play guitar was the Elvis song, Baby, Let's Play House, and that he learned all the Sun Records stuff note by note. Jimmy is a smart man and an avid fan of music, so it's likely that his first introduction to Roy Orbison was the song Ooby Dooby. It is a fast song with Roy taking two guitar solos. In the rock and roll years, Orbison was more known for ferocious guitar picking than his voice and songwriting. Along with Scotty Moore and Carl Perkins, he was noted by Sam Phillips as the best guitar player at Sun Records. Another of Roy's Sun Records singles, the first self-written song he recorded, Go Go Go, also known as Down the Line, would occasionally turn up in Led Zeppelin's live show as part of the medley, Whole Lot of Love. One recorded example is the 1970 January 9th show at London's Royal Albert Hall. Go look it up. It's great. Robert Plant's introduction to Orbison's music is described by him in the Life of Roy Orbison documentary in Dreams. The quotation from Robert is, Roy first came into my life when I was 12 years old. Only the Lonely was his first big, big hit in England. I bought that record. I used to do a paper route, delivering morning newspapers, and I was already developing a love for black American music, New Orleans, Chicago music. But this one voice, along with Presley, offered me some kind of clue as to what was coming up in my adolescence. End of quote by Robert Plant. In a 1972 Led Zeppelin concert in Seattle, Washington, Only the Lonely would be used as part of Robert's improvised lyrics during the Whole Lot of Love medley. A subconscious reference can be heard in certain lyrics of Led Zeppelin. Had a friend, she once told me, You got love, you ain't lonely. Now she's gone and left me only, looking for what I knew. That Only the Lonely rhyme could come from anywhere. A lot of people have used it, but... For Robert Plant, that came from Roy Orbison. 
The Yardbirds, featuring Jimmy Page on guitar, were the opening act of the Australian leg of Roy Orbison's 1967 world tour. The new manager for the Yardbirds was Peter Grant. The shows were the first gigs he booked for them. These were the first audiences to see Jimmy's technique of bowing his guitar like a violin. So Roy was one of the first people to see what would become one of Jimmy Page's trademarks, the violin bow technique. And Jimmy Page and Roy Orbison became good friends on this tour. There's still a story Jimmy has tried to tell me about a guitar, but we've never had time to finish. Dad's stage guitar at the time was a black Gibson Les Paul Custom. It's still heavily associated with Roy Orbison. Black hair, black sunglasses, black Gibson Les Paul Custom. He later switched to a black Gibson ES-335, but during this period until 1972, as can be seen in the video Roy Orbison live in Australia 1972, the Custom was an Orbison thing. With Led Zeppelin, Jimmy is famous for the Les Paul standard. It looks about the same as the LP Custom, but sounds different. During this Yardbirds Orbison tour, his guitar was the same as my father's guitar of choice, a black Gibson LP Custom. Jimmy's guitar was lost or stolen on this story, and I think the story is he Jimmy's guitar was lost or stolen on this tour, and I think the story he has tried to tell me involves my dad helping him somehow. I also remember my dad telling me Jimmy would come to the airport and meet him like a fan when he flew into London and that dad would bring him strings and guitar parts. 7,000 people attended the opening performance of Roy Orbison's Australian tour in Sydney, where in the middle of January, it was summer. The temperature soared close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The paper says many girls were carted off to the hospitals. I assume that was because of the heat, but many girls still fainted romantically at Roy Orbison's shows. The show was relayed by radio and reached people a thousand miles away. It was a big event for Australia at the time. It was opened by a local band, and next up were the Yardbirds. They did their most popular hits of the day, including Shapes of Things and I'm a Man. There was an interval, followed by the Walker Brothers. Then Roy came on and did Only the Lonely. The kids went wild with screaming, but were quiet during the next song and every other song so they could hear it all. The tour dates were as follows. Saturday, January 21st, Sydney Festival Hall, 6 p.m. and 8.45 p.m. They did two shows. Sunday, January 22nd, they did a Sydney television show. And I've often wondered if that still exists. I would love to see Jimmy Page and Roy doing a show <laughs> on the same bill. Monday, January 23rd, Sydney Festival Hall, 6 p.m. and 8.45. Tuesday, January 24th, Adelaide Centennial Hall, 6 p.m. and 8.45. Wednesday, January 25th, Adelaide Centennial Hall, 6 and 8.45 p.m. After the 8.45 show, they leave for Melbourne immediately, arriving in Melbourne at close to 1 a.m. Thursday, January 26th, this is all in 1967, remember, and I've always wanted to get more pictures and more information on this tour because it's just so cool. Uh, Friday, January 27th, the Melbourne Festival Hall, 6 
p.m. and 8.45 p.m. Saturday, January 28th, Brisbane Festival Hall, 6 p.m. and 8.45 p.m. You may wonder why I'm going through all of these dates, but that's because each one was a great concert. You've got to imagine girls and all the stuff going on. These shows would have been incredible. I would have loved to have gone to any one of these, and there was quite a few here. Monday, January 30th, Christ Church, New Zealand at the Theatre Royale. Theater Royal. Tuesday, January 31st, Wellington, New Zealand at the Town Hall. Wednesday, February 1st, Hamilton, New Zealand, Founders Theater. Thursday, February 2nd, Auckland, New Zealand, Town Hall. Friday, February 3rd, Roy Orbison flies to New York. And day by day, that's just incredible. I mean, I think you could make a movie or something out of this whole thing. A documentary. In those days, it was common for acts to do two shows a night. Roy Orbison would tour like this 200-plus days a year for the rest of his life. Jimmy Page, in the 1990s, when asked by a guitar magazine interviewer the question, how has the music business changed over the years, answered with several lines about Roy Orbison, saying, success was easier now than in the old days when they worked poor Roy Orbison to death. I haven't read the article in a long time, but I remember it made me cry. It still does, but it was amazing to me that he cared enough to lash out at the system in those words. For a road warrior like Jimmy Page to single out my dad as an example of someone who worked themselves to death on the road seems quite an honor. The Orbison set concluded with his latest single in 1967, Communication Breakdown, and then everybody's favorite, Oh Pretty Woman. Although the songs are quite different, I've wondered about Zeppelin's communication breakdown since I was 12 years old. My dad wrote hundreds of songs. Of course, many of the titles are general enough to have been used by others. So even I thought it was just a funny coincidence. Until recently, when I realized Jimmy saw this song performed over and over again, twice a night, every night, only a year before using it as a title on Led Zeppelin 1. The drummer from the tour at the time has told me that Jimmy Page asked permission to use the song title. In any case, Mr. Page certainly must have liked the title. The title for Roy's song held the obvious meaning, a couple having problems communicating. 99 out of 100 Zepp fans hear the title with that meaning, but I believe the title for Zeppelin's song was probably a humorous reference, breakdown being a play on titles like Flat and Scrugg's Foggy Mountain Breakdown, where the word breakdown means song, like Lemon Song, Rain Song, the word stomp. Led Zeppelin used the, the word song as a description for the song itself. So when you hear a communication breakdown, it is like the Foggy Mountain Breakdown. It's the communication breakdown. And I think I'm the only person that's figured this out. Uh, next time I see Jimmy Page, I'm certainly going to ask him. I'm going to say, Jimmy, I think I figured out your little riddle, your little puzzle, your funny title, Communication Breakdown. And uh, I don't even really have to ask. Uh, it's one of those areas that I'm confident that uh, that is the meaning. And I, as I'm saying, I don't think anybody, I've never read that anywhere. I've never heard anybody else say it. And I don't think anybody else got that. <laughs> but it was rather witty, the Communication Breakdown. I'm still proud of that. And I know quite a few things about Led Zeppelin that I haven't heard anywhere else, um, just as a fan. 
I also always wondered about Bex Bellero, which Jimmy played on and says he came up with. Jeff Beck also says he wrote it. Both of these guys toured with Roy Orbison. The Jeff Beck band, the Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart, when you hear those famous stories about Rod Stewart hiding behind the amp during the whole first show he ever did because he was afraid, and he sang Hidden Behind the Amp, they were opening for Roy Orbison in London. <laughs> and uh, so both of these guys think they wrote it, and I have a little chip on my shoulder because I know Roy Orbison wrote Bex Bolero. Bex Bolero sounds very little like Ravel's Bolero and very much like Roy Orbison's Running Scared. Bex Bolero is a 3-4 kind of cadence. It's 1-2-3, 1-2-3. Roy's is the dot, dot-da-da-dot, dot-da-da-dot, dot-da-da-dot-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
And uh, this time he came back off of, in the 85, he came back and he handed me something and it was badly written on a torn piece of corner of a paper and it said Robert Plant. And at the time, I remember thinking, I remember I wasn't, that was a, that was a period where I wasn't so much into Led Zeppelin. <laughs> uh, I remember thinking, I'm more impressed with you, Dad. You know, I, I remember thinking that, going like, ah, oh, you know, and I, I took the piece of paper and I, I kind of threw it up on the top shelf in my closet and it was there for a while. And uh, I wish I still had it. I don't have it. It's a beautiful present from Roy and it's signed by Robert. And it means a lot to me in my mind now. But I just threw it up on the top of my closet and haven't seen it since. Strange, really strange when I look back at it. Okay. I know Roy really liked Jimmy Page, too. He was pretty critical about most music, but he always spoke well of Jimmy Page. One of my fondest memories is of when I was 13 years old and had just started to love Led Zeppelin. I cranked the volume up really loud in my room. I mean really loud. It was the guitar bow part of one of the songs. I was trying to be rebellious and make my parents mad. I remember I was turning up so loud I wanted to get everybody's attention. And it was so loud. I had a new stereo back in the 80s. That, you know, they, It was really unbelievably loud. My dad walks in and motions for me to turn it down. When I do, instead of being mad at me, he says... Is Jimmy Page in that band? He had never heard Led Zeppelin before, as far as I knew. And I couldn't figure out how he knew that. And it took me until sometime in 2005 to fully understand. You cannot rebel against Roy Orbison with music. That's the way that I ended this article. And uh, I just read it for you. It sounds really great. It still sounds good. I've got some little things I would add in or take away. Um, but overall, I'm proud of it, and all the information still stands. And uh, I throw it out there not as some kind of a, you know, to change things, but to to push the the information forward. There's a lot of research I think that can be done in these areas, and and I mean I think there's a whole book to be written just on this one area of that tour. I know my dad. Uh, he mentioned later, you know, Peter Grant. He really liked Peter Grant. And I just imagine some of the late-night conversations between Peter Grant, Jimmy Page, and Roy Orbison. Now, we'll go into another part of the podcast where I discuss just random thoughts that I have on Led Zeppelin, and there's quite a few. I've been lucky enough to be a part of, or at least a witness to, some critical points in Led Zeppelin's history that no one else could possibly know because I was the only one in the room. But I'll start with just some Led Zeppelin trivia. The song that you guys know is Dyer Maker, D-Y-E-R-M-A-K-E-R. All the time I'm talking to people and they go, Dyer Maker, Dyer Maker. And I say, oh no, you guys didn't get that? That's Jimmy's kind of title for Jamaica. If you say it like a kind of an East London accent, Jamaica, Jamaica. It's the way Dire Maker is actually Jamaica. And if you listen to that song, it has a reggae kind of beat, kind of a, a, a backbeat. That backbeat. And uh, making it one of the first crossover reggae songs. I know Eric Clapton had I Shot the Sheriff. And I'm, I'm just pulling, I'm not looking at notes. So I, that was like 74 or something. 
And uh, this would be a little bit earlier, and, and I'm proud of Led Zeppelin for that. I'm like, oh, they were pulling from so many influ influences, and uh, they were one of the first rock bands to do a kind of a reggae song. Most people don't quite hear it as that, but if you listen back to it, and I also know where Jimmy got that. There's a, an, a guy that toured with my dad really early in 1956. His name's Warren Smith. He had a song called Red Cadillac and a Black Mustache. And when you play the guitar part for Red Cadillac and a Black Mustache, you get Jamaica. You get Dire Maker, which was, I believe, on um, Houses of the Holy. Or, or the, the no, uh, yeah, it was on the fifth album. So that's a lot of information from you. I know that's already going to go like, uh, that's going to be something that's very debatable. Oh, da, da, da. But uh, I, I'm sure of it. You guys, that's where he's getting it. He got it from Red Cadillac, Black Mustache. You take that little... It's a beautiful little part. I've always been fascinated by the guitar part because it's a it's a strum and then kind of a a down strum with an up a little a little it's almost arpeggiated and then a little up two notes and uh, it's just a beautiful little part and they that's one of my favorite songs that they did and Robert's vocals are great. The rest of it it's a great example of how Led Zeppelin like almost better than any other band. It's a great example of how Led Zeppelin, like the Beatles, would take from so many sources so early and make it into something new. So I don't want anyone to misunderstand when I'm saying, like, this is where people got it. I've, I've had other interviews I've done where people just it went viral that they thought I was saying something that I wasn't saying. But I, I'm just kind of putting the information out there. there. It doesn't take any of the genius away from Jimmy Page that he pulled from reggae and a Sun Records song from 1956, and they changed it around so that nobody could figure it out for 60 years. Um, it's pretty genius. The Beatles, too. All the time I talk about the Beatles' um, influences and their, their, where they got stuff, and people always get mad, but I'm, I don't think it takes anything away from, uh, from their genius at all. You, you funnel things through the prism of the genius of John Lennon or Jimmy Page, and you get something that's unexplainable. I mean, that's what I can't explain. I can show you where they got it from and give you the raw materials. doesn't mean anybody else could have done it, and uh, I certainly couldn't have. So I, I'm all the more in awe when I find the, the little pieces these guys got, and I thought they turned it into something so new that you almost can't recognize the source. Communication Breakdown is one of my favorite songs to play. I've already talked about that a little bit. Um, let me jump on to my favorite Led Zeppelin song, Since I've Been Loving You. Oh my gosh, I have spent my life smashing into that wall. Um, it is so good. For me, it's it's my favorite song, and it's there. It's the most complicated and my, the best. That's saying a lot, you know. There's... I love how on each each album there was a great rocker, like the first album was Communication Breakdown, the next one was Whole Lot of Love, the next one is Immigrant Song, the next one is Rock and Roll, but um, and each song kind of has a ballad that's great, and there's a real Led Zeppelin style on those albums that's uh, impossible to duplicate. But uh, Since I've Been Loving You, for me, is Jimmy Page's personal masterpiece. When I pick a per, when I f pick favorite songs of Led Zeppelin, I pick for each band member. I have a favorite John Bonham song. I have a favorite John Paul Jones song. I have a favorite Robert Plant song. My favorite Robert Plant vocal is "Hey, Hey, What Can I Do." I really, really like that one, 
And like everything, I just had to figure out what makes that one different and special than the others. And I figured out what they did was, uh, I was listening to Led Zeppelin on on a, on that Walkman I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast. And as the batteries would go down on the Walkman, it kind of slowed down a little bit. And Robert Plant, I liked his voice more. And I would actually keep the old batteries so I could listen to... I would put the old batteries in a trade-off, and I would keep the batteries low because I loved Robert Plant's voice slowed down. That's what they did on a Hey, Hey, What Can I Do? When I would try to play along with it, it was never in the right key, and I could hear it was tuned down a little, and I thought, ah, that's in the mastering phase. They tuned, they, they slowed that song down. That was done on Chuck Berry songs. Chuck Berry all the time, like, it would be in one key, and I would go watch him live or see a live tape, and it was lower. He would be doing Johnny Be Good in like G or something, and when you listen to it, it's in B. It's because they sped it up. This is the opposite case, and I'm sure of this. I don't know where I know all this, but they slowed Hey, Hey, What Can I Do down, and it, it gave some some scratch and some some depth, some dimension to Robert Plant's voice that isn't anywhere else. And um, so that that's the one that I listen to. I, it gives me goosebumps every time I listen to it. Hey, Hey, What Can I Do? The, the, the rolling, beautiful song. Boy, it's so beautiful. Back to Since I've Been Loving You. Uh, I'll try to make this quicker. I, you know, I go through my life trying to figure out. I remember one time I was asleep at my brother's house when I was about 18 years old. And I actually went and woke him up when I figured out. I said, Wes, Wes, Since I've Been Loving You. It's a minor blues, and what I what I figured out was that inst- all I knew at the time was a pentatonic scale, and I could hear that Jimmy was doing something way more complicated. The minor pentatonic scale is five notes, and I said, Wes, Wes, he's playing minor scales over each chord, giving you those two extra notes that you need. And I remember thinking I had the song. I mean, I mean, I thought I got it. That's it. It's a one four five blues minor, and it's got these extra notes. And instead of just sticking in the 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 root note uh, pentatonic, he is moving it around. And I thought I had it. And uh, and you know, I've spent the rest of my life trying to get it. If there's so much in there, um, that is one of the big tricks. That's a big trick for anyone trying to get it. It's you know, so it's in C. It's in the key of C. So you play the C Aeolian, the C minor scale, and you get those extra notes. And you move it around a little bit to the F minor and to the uh, to the, the the G minor. Uh, that's part of it. But there's so so much more. I've read other people saying, how did this English guy from you know the '60s figure this out? And it's almost a pinnacle blues song. It is for me. It is. But it's even arguably it is the greatest of all blues songs. And so I try to figure out where it comes from and. It turns out B.B. Uh, King's Thrill is Gone. I think that was 72. That was around the right time. You know, so if there's any one song that it came from, it would be B.B. King's Thrill is Gone. B.B. King, he plays a similar kind of style on 3 O'Clock Blues. And uh, it got me into minor blues. You know, minor blues are just great. Stevie Ray Vaughan does a great minor blues. Forgot what it's called right now, but... Uh, you know, uh, you take a little bit of that Freddie King style and some early, but it's still something so totally new. It is like English progressive minor blues. Uh, Otis Rush or, or one of these guys who was his Magic Sam. Uh, somebody did um, All Your Love I Miss Loving, which alternates between minor and then goes to a kind of more upbeat thing. 
and Steve Ray Vaughan redid that one. I went and I found every kind of minor blues I could find, uh, trying to learn since I've been loving you. And if you're trying to figure it out, maybe I'm making a little roadmap. I mean, you should go learn A Hummingbird by B.B. King. Uh, that was produced by Leon Russell, but it's a great D minor song, Hummingbird. Um, it was funny because I went back and learned that and then figured out that Led Ze- uh, that Jimmy Page did it on his solo album. Uh, I think it was called Outrider or whatever it was called. Uh, on Jimmy Page's solo album, there it is, Hummingbird. And... Uh, I learned Hummingbird, and it's kind of D minor and kind of B flats and some ninth chords and things. And then um, later, Slash came out with Anastasia. And I'm playing Anastasia around. I'm playing it. I'm playing it. There's a really famous video of a, a cute girl playing it on YouTube, and everybody loves that. So I'm playing it and playing it. It's, a, it's really a masterpiece. It's one of my favorite songs. The fact that it came out so late is amazing, but it's one of my favorite top ten guitar songs, I think. Anastasia by Slash, solo. And the chords, I went, where have I heard this? Where have I, oh my gosh, it's Hummingbird. And I'm sure Slash, we're about the same age, he he learned it the same way. We all learned it from B.B. King, and he kind of recycled it into a totally new form again. But uh, if you take Hummingbird, and re- it really, Thrill is gone. You're back around at that. That's the only one. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting a little bit boring about Since I've Been Loving You Now. Uh, there's so much on that song. I think I'm done with that, but uh, it's worth it to learn the live versions. There's one on Song Remains the Same. There's one on How the West Was Won. There's on the BBC. So, like, in my phone right now, I have a, I have a Since I've Been Loving You playlist where I have, like, seven different versions. They do a version on Page and Plant, which they did later, you know, solo. And there's a live version you can watch there, too. Uh, you need to watch all the live versions. You need to listen to all the live versions. And uh, that's where I, it's one of my little tricks. When I play Since I've Been Loving You, I can kind of pull from all of them and do something that sounds really very Jimmy Page-ish. Page-ish. And people, people who have heard it, they go, oh my gosh, you know, and they almost don't get that I'm mixing and matching little riffs and parts from all six, seven different versions. And uh, it makes it something very special. It's a great one. Whenever I see a band trying it, and I say trying it because like Voodoo Child and some of my dad's songs even, you know, nobody else can really do them. You can't, if you do the song Crying by Roy Orbison, they're going to throw pie in your face. <laughs> I know personally. I get attacked all the time being Roy Orbison's son because those songs, it's like doing Jimi Hendrix, uh, Voodoo Child. It's like doing, you try to do Jimmy Page, Since I've Been Loving You, you're going to get shot down by a lot of haters. But... I'm always impressed by anyone who tries it, and I always slow down and watch the version, and uh, and hats off. It's never as good, admittedly, but I like to see people try, and I'm just so interested in it. Um, <laughs> now that I've talked a little bit about the music, I'm going to mention just, I have a little list here. Here's some other little memories. My birthday, October 18th, 2009. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and my mom says, I have a surprise for you. My brother Alex happens to be here for my birthday, and we got in the car, and we drive, and we're driving, and I don't know, I remember, I I don't know what I thought we were doing, we're driving somewhere. This is my birthday present. They were both really excited. I could see Alex was trying not to tell me, and my mom was also, she was fighting not to tell me. We drive through Nashville, and we continue on east, and we're driving outside Nashville. We're driving east. 
in a way, there's nothing east of Nashville that we would be going to do. There's some lakes that we go to sometimes out there, Cedar Hill or whatever it's called. But so we're driving and we get like 15 minutes out and there's like, there's nothing. There's fewer gas stations. We're on the freeway. We're driving. We're driving. I'm like, where are we going for my birthday? What is this big surprise? We pull up somewhere. Uh, there's people parking. We're at some kind of little event. It's a little... The little a little factory, a little warehouse or something, tin roof, looks pretty crappy outside. We're like a farm. Other people are getting out. We get out. Some people that I know are in the audio uh, are in the the parking lot getting out. I see the head of CMT, uh, Country Music Television. I see some some people. So I know. Oh, we're we're at something. Why are all these people coming here? What are we doing? We walk inside and we sit down, and uh, almost immediately. Someone comes out and they say, ladies and gentlemen, Robert Plant at CMT Crossroads, da, 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 da. So I was there to see Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, and it was my birthday, and I just, I, I think I started crying. I couldn't believe that my mom was so sensitive to know, I almost cry now, that she knew how much I would love this. This is one of my favorite birthdays. She took me to see Robert Plant for my birthday, and, uh, Afterwards, in this little place, everyone left, and Robert was there, and we went back and talked to him, and it was the most time. I spent about two hours standing talking to Robert Plant. My mom, my brother, and Robert and I, we were the only ones there. There was one photographer running around. I can't get this guy to give me the pictures. <laughs> He's retired now. He says, oh, I have so many pictures, I can't find them. There's pictures out there of Barbara Orbison and me and Alex and Robert Plant on my birthday. Still trying to get these pictures. But I just remember after two hours, Robert Plant, he's just done a show. He's got better things to do, obviously. And he's still he's standing and my feet were hurting. And I just thought, Robert, he's still so engaged with us. He was really, really interested in Roy Orbison and talking to my mom. And he was friends with my mom. But the 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 sense of, once again, the word sensitivity, the, the attention that Robert gave me is is still strange to me, you know. I didn't know him that well for him to zone in and be so involved and in asking me questions, you know. He and uh, other things. We were at a CMT Awards that was also in Nashville one time, and I'm sitting around all these famous people. I mean, everyone around me is big stars. There's big international stars, and there's big LA stars, and um, I don't remember if it was Justin Timberlake, but everyone is around us, and. Robert's walking up to his seat, which was behind my seat, and he passes by, and everyone's trying to get his attention, every one, every one of these guys, all the record company heads, and Scott Borchetta, and Taylor Swift, and everyone's trying to get his attention. He ignores everybody and comes over, and when he sees me, he walks into the line, leans over, shakes my hand, I stand up, I give him a hug, and I just remember, even among all these stars, everyone's looking at us. I just thought, I, I knew my stature among these guys went way up. They couldn't get his attention at all. He walks by, he stopped, came over, gave my mom a kiss on the cheek, shook my brother Alex's hand, said, hello, let's do lunch soon. Da, da. He went back and sat in his seat. A little, little 45-second encounter like that I'll never forget. And I, I think actually the rest of the people watching never forget either. The rest of the night while we're watching the show, at any break, they all turned to look and see what I was doing and stuff. And I, I remember feeling like, wow, wow. <laughs> I was stoked. And uh, I was at the Ivor Novella Awards in 2007, and that's a big uh, industry show for England and London. 
I'm walking in with my buddy Lou Chalk and his brother, and we're walking by Robert Plant, and we don't say hello. We're not saying anything. You know, you don't, I don't interrupt people when I see these guys walking by. He's walking by, and he looks at us, and he zones in and comes over and says, Look, it's me. And he points in my, he points in my face, and he said that. <laughs> and he gives me a big hug and everything. He stops again. I'm just walking by him in the crowd. He's leaving, not going to bother him. And, uh, and I had to tell him, I said, Well, you know, <laughs> That the reason I have my hair long like this is because uh, because of you. And uh, it was one of the greatest compliments I ever got was Robert Plant. I knew he couldn't remember my name, but he knew he knew me. He said, look, it's me. And uh, <laughs> I mean, can there be a greater compliment? I was like, dude, don't look that much, but I got the long hair. I'm Yeah, I'll take it. So uh, another another just staggering like memory for me as a super fan. Gosh, um, I'll jump through my, the last time I saw Jimmy Page was 2014. I was staying in Sunset Marquee. I'm eating breakfast. He comes in and sits down just right beside me. And he's there for Genesis book. If you don't have this book, the book is, I think it's called Led Zeppelin by Led Zeppelin. It's a company, the Genesis company. They want to do a Roy black and white night book. We've never gotten around to it. But uh, he sat down there, and we, we had breakfast at the tables. Again, I didn't really bother him as much as I kind of should. I wanted all these questions, but when they're sitting right there, he was working, left him alone. But I uh, got up and went and shook his hand, and he remembered who I was and everything. You know, I, I, entered, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm Roy Orbison. So he, oh, yeah, yeah. He knew, he knew it and uh, smiled. When he hears that I'm Roy's son, he really, really, um, he re Jimmy, uh, Jimmy really, treats me nice he takes me under wing and uh so my last two led zeppelin stories i just thought of another one because of that so i am at it's around 2000 something i am at a jimmy page event in uh for the homeless kids in brazil street children in brazil and uh Jimmy's there, and when I walk up, I don't know where I'm going to be sitting. They, they, what's your name at the list? I say Roy Orbison, Jr. And they say, they look down, and they said, oh, you're at the Iron Maiden table. So I go in, and it's me and Iron Maiden. That's the only people at our table. And there's other tables. Over there was Sam Moore, my good buddy from Sam and Dave. He was next to us. We had a an amazing night, eating food, drinking whiskey. I was drinking whiskey with Dave Murray, who's, you know, he even said at the time, he said, I don't really drink, but okay, I'll drink with you. So I was getting drunk, blah, 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 but bidding on guitars. They, they, Iron Maiden had to go sign this guitar like everyone, and they got up, and since I was the only person left at my table, they came back and grabbed me on each side. They said, you're coming with us. Come sign this guitar. I was like, dude, this guitar is being signed by all these guys. And you're assigned it too. We signed, and I should have bid on that guitar. It was only three thousand pounds at the time, and that's a lot. That was a lot. But if I had, I would have a guitar with my name on it, and Jimmy Page guaranteed, and Bruce Dickinson, and everybody else who was there. So uh, that's a little bit of a memory. But after the show, I remember uh, I two or three things. I was in the corner. I, I learned from my dad kind of when you move through, move through rooms, how to move through shadows and kind of behind people, how to be unnoticed. So I was looking around. I was in a room with about 1,000 people, and I was in the far, far corner in the darkened corner. As I went to the darkened corner, I was thinking of the Johnny Cash song uh, that says, and I find the dark, I, I still miss someone. 
I find the darkened corner. I, I remember thinking of those lyrics. I went, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hear in the darkened corner. I don't want to play with all these people. And I think Shania Twain, I think I danced with her that night. And I remember a lot of amazing things that day. But I was in the corner and I'm looking around for Jimmy. And I'm looking, I want to go ask him about these guitars and things and all these questions about Jeff Bolero and all that stuff. And I can't find him, can't find him. There's no Jimmy Page. It's an event for him. And the guy comes up on stage where, and, and he says, and now we'd like to give Jimmy the award. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. And someone taps me on the shoulder and there was a very small amount of space behind me. And in the darkened corner behind me was Jimmy Page. The, he was the only person. I'm, I'm saying I was two feet from the corner and he was hidden in the darkness. He out-orbisoned me. He even further... You know, so I, I just couldn't believe it. I had been looking for him for 10 minutes, standing on my tiptoes, trying to look through the crowd just to locate him. So I missed my big opportunity there. So he goes up on stage. He gets the award. And I'm sure he's leaving afterwards. So he leaves. And I'm like, oh, he's going to get out of here as soon as he does his thing. And I'm walking around and I'm doing other stuff. And I, I forgot who else I was with. Um, and then a girl comes up to me and she says, are you Roy? I said, yes. And she said, she said, I'm Hermione, Hermione Page. Jimmy's looking for you. I said, oh, my gosh. You know, and who are you? And it was his teenage daughter in London. And I, at that time, I didn't really know if he was married or had kids and still don't. He's very mysterious. And maybe I'm saying too much. Maybe people aren't supposed to know about these people. But, but so then she took me around. I followed her around the rest of the night. And I spent the day running around with Hermione Page and... Um, an absolutely beautiful girl, great spirit, amazing. And she took me to meet Jimmy, and you know, I hung out with them the rest of the night. And with all these famous people there, Jimmy was looking for me. Another staggering thing. I know almost nobody would even believe it in a way. I can't believe it, but, but that's what happened. That was an amazing one. And uh, the last story, which I say is the best, uh, and it kind of is the best. So the Polar Music Awards is an award show by... Um, by my friends, uh, the the ABBA producers, in um, in Sweden, and uh, and I love that family as well. And um, it's a great award. It's like the Nobel Peace Prize in Sweden, and they give it to different people. And I've been there. I remember meeting. I've got. Oh, I need to do so much stuff. I I've had so many good nights there. I, I would usually sit at the Gibson table. I've sat with the king and his family, the king of Sweden. I I went to the Bruce Springsteen. I could do a whole podcast just on the the, the Polar Music Awards, and I th I think I will sometime. BB King was walking off stage, and I said, "Thank you for your whole life." And he walked up to me, and he just done the show. He said, "Let me shake your hand, son." And I held up my hand and shook his hand, and he walked away. And it was like this, it was like that old football commercial with me, whatever, whatever, Mean Low Green or whoever, Mean Joe Green. He shakes his kid and he turns and the kid gets the Coke and the, the towel. B.B. King walks away, and as he's walking, I look down at my own hand and I have a guitar pick. He had palmed the guitar pick when he said, let me shake your hand, and he shook my hand, and he didn't know I was Orbison, didn't know anything about me. Picked me out of the crowd, said, let me shake your hand, son. Shook my hand. When he walked away, I had a B.B. King guitar pick in my hand, his, his show pick. And when I shook his hand, I almost felt electricity, and I feel electricity in the pick, and I still have the pick. And those kind of BB guitar picks, uh, I think they're a thousand five hundred bucks. That one is priceless. It's going in the Orbison Museum someday. That was just like a random little thing that happened to me with BB King. 
That's one of the most significant things in my life as a guitarist. Uh, so this one was the Led Zeppelin. So my mom flew in. We're staying in the Grand Hotel. And I could talk for hours about just this experience. For whatever reason, they, they no one else was in the Grand Hotel. And uh, to jump at sh kind of a short story, um, although getting in and out of the hotel, there were crowds of people, Led Zeppelin. And I remember seeing a bunch of 15-year-old girls, a bunch, 30 or 40 15-year-old girls, Swedish girls, outside the hotel, the Grand Hotel. And I just wanted to see. I couldn't even believe they knew Led Zeppelin, even in whatever year this was, 2000 and something. And I said, who are you guys here to see? And these girls looked up and they said, Led Zeppelin and Roy Orbison Jr. They didn't even know who I was. And I was like, what is going on here? Me going in and out of the hotel, there were guards and things. And maybe when I was giving my name, it, the crowd, and these girls didn't know the difference between Led Zeppelin and Roy Orbison Jr. They had their little hand, their little... Their, their their little autograph books. They had papers and pens, and they were out there like all night long, all day long, just a little crowd. And sometimes when I was going back out, they would ask me for autographs. I was signing autographs, <laughs> me and Jimmy Page signing autographs for lines of people. Um, but so we were in there, and no one else was in that hotel. And this is the great story. This is my, my greatest Led Zeppelin story. I'm in the hotel lobby, my mom is talking to Jimmy Page and Jimmy's manager. I'm talking to Robert Plant, and John Paul Jones is 10 feet away, and he's talking to someone. There's no one else. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. You know, there's less than 10 people, and the people that work there and the, are, are around them. You know, there's a, there's a front desk, and there's a doorman, and there's a couple of kind of bodyguard people around. But So there's about 8 to 10 people, and I'm one of them. We're stuck in there. There's nowhere to go because the fans have surrounded the building. And we're in the lobby just hanging out. I'm talking to Robert Plant about something. And he, and to put this in context, Led Zeppelin had not been together in the room, those three, in years, in, in 10 years, 8 years. They hadn't been together. And so what I'm telling you about, guys, here, you heard it here first. You're only going to hear it here. I was the only other person in the room other than my mom and the, these guys' managers to witness a, Re, a Led Zeppelin reunion. And all these years, they talk all the time about Led They still talk about it. It's a mythological thing, Led Zeppelin reunion. But this was a, a physical, spiritual reunion, not a musical reunion. I'm talking to, to Paige, and suddenly his eyes glaze. I'm talking to Plant. I'm talking to Robert Plant. Suddenly his eyes glaze over and he, and he goes, Jonesy? And he's looking across the room. And then he looks at me. He did, Suddenly, I'm not even there. He says, excuse me. And he walks over and gives him a big hug. And what I <laughs> realize is, oh, you know, they hadn't seen each other in years. He looked across the room and saw. And when he said Jonesy, I'm like, oh, I know that from books and things. That's what they call John Paul Jones. And so to be sloughed off like that to be pushed to the side and that way was was a, another highlight of my life i'm talking to robert he goes jones he, he said excuse me he doesn't even look at me he walks straight to jump and they give each other a big hug and i got to see these guys hug each other when they hadn't seen each other in many years and the led zeppelin fan club will go find out exactly how many years but it was years they had been in lawsuits they did page and plant and didn't invite john paul jones there was a lot of energy in these three being in the same room again 
and uh, it it's possibly even the last time that they were all together again. I think they've they've thought of reunion tours and things, but but wow, wow, and uh, and this we were in the lobby down there in that hotel off and on for for days. Uh, for three days, we were there, and I got to know all of them really well, and got Jimmy's manager's number, and and uh, to see that, I, it was just it was just very strange to be <laughs> these three guys, to be the fly on the wall, to see the raw emotion, the way that they love each other, and nothing to do with music or anything, you know, just friends. Um, to be just kind of a fly on the wall of that was again. Uh, I can't believe I was the only person to witness one of the major events in music history. <laughs> it was uh, these guys, you know, just getting back together again just to accept this award. I hope I've made it interesting enough. Uh, I've certainly talked a lot about Led Zeppelin. There is a lot more for me to tell. I'm leaving a lot out. I'm jumping past a lot of musical things. I would love to talk about the amps, about the Telecaster, the history of, of Jimmy Page's amps, you know, I use a blue modern reissue Supro amp to get the sounds of the Led Zeppelin 1 album, the, the, uh, the communication breakdown. Uh, that first album was recorded with a telly, the one that Defender has reissued called the Dragon Telecaster. Um, I always played Telecaster, so I've actually gone through Led Zeppelin song listening for what songs have that Telecaster. And it's some significant great songs, uh, Stairway to Heaven. It's on a Les Paul, but for the solo, that the solo which is considered one of the top ten guitar solos of all time, Stairway to Heaven, that was played on his Telecaster. And uh, it's interesting to me that on certain songs, he pulls out Old Faithful, the Telecaster. And I can't think straight off which ones I really think he's playing it on. He plays a B-Bender on some songs. I think he plays it on some of my other kind of favorite songs like um, Ten Years Gone and... Um, and uh, just certain songs, certain songs on Physical Graffiti were that Telecaster. He pulled it, he played it a little in 1975 again, but it was there at the beginning, it was there throughout, but he's famous for Gibsons and Marshalls, but he actually was playing through smaller little amps turned way up for that Led Zeppelin sound. I spent a lot of time kind of studying that. The guitar pedals he used, he, he did something, a show called... Um, something loud play it loud or something where he's with the guy from the jack white and edge and he pulls out a little guitar pedal and he does the whole lot of riff whole lot of love riff and uh, so people have spent a lot of time looking for original you know i normally know all the names of all these things but i'm just shooting it off the top of my head so you know just the equipment that jimmy page used so important so vital um there's a blue MXR box that he uses on, like, Fool in the Rain or some of those songs on the later albums. I would love to even go through album by album and just talk about what the different ones mean. But, of course, those first five are really, really special. And um, another thing that all the fans and even my friends hate, I like to play a game called Led Zeppelin's Five Worst Songs. And I've had people go like, oh, my God, that's like, that's like, what are your first five worst orgasms? Or what are your first five worst, you know, rave trips and things? They're like, oh, yeah, you, that's sacrilegious. You can't say what are. And I go, no, no, that's almost harder than picking your five favorite Led Zeppelin songs. Uh, but uh, I'll try to end it with that. If I had to pick just off the top of my head and I didn't plan it, it would be uh, Communication Breakdown. It would be Since I've Been Loving You. 
Um, there's certain songs that I end up playing on guitar all the time without trying to. If I'm sitting around, I am strum, strumming Tangerine. I like the riff from Black Dog, but sticking with top five. See, fun game. Uh, communication Breakdown, Stairway to Heaven, um, Since I've Been Loving You, Whole Lot of Love. I'll leave the last one undecided because it switches around so so often. But I mean, I really like how many more times. Uh, a song that Jimmy says is his least favorite Led Zeppelin song, and they never really played it live, was Living, Loving, Made. And I always wonder why. I go, man, that song is like just an extension of Heartbreaker. Heartbreaker might be number five. Heartbreaker, Living, Loving, Made is one thing. Might be number five. See, I'm getting excited. All these years, I'm talking on a podcast. I'm talking quick getting all excited talking about Led Zeppelin. So I hope you love him as much as me. I hope I haven't said anything to offend you. And uh, thank you for listening. This has been another great episode of Roy Orbison Jr.'s Rock and Roll Circus podcast, the Led Zeppelin episode. God bless. Thank you. (laughs) 